Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on overturning Roe versus Wade. Our first speaker will be John McGinnis, who is the George C. Dix Professor in Constitutional Law at Northwestern's Pritzker's School of Law. John will evaluate Justice Leto's Dobbs opinion and the originalist approach to jurisprudence. Our second speaker will be Howard Husak, who is the Senior Fellow of Domestic Policy Studies at AEI, a Washington, D.C. think tank. Howard will be speaking about the political implications of overturning Roe versus Wade. I want to find out from Howard if pushing the abortion decision away from the courts to our elected representatives will increase or decrease conflict in our society. The abortion issue is red hot, and today's discussion will likely be highly provocative. I will moderate this session to be politically neutral. I believe that the role of the journalist or moderator is to ask expert questions and then to refrain from expressing an opinion. This is how I plan to behave. Our experts will express their opinions, and it is my hope that whatever you believe about Roe versus Wade, this discussion will challenge you. As I just mentioned, we are going to hear from a constitutional law professor who applies an originalist perspective, and we'll also hear from a domestic political policy analyst. We will not discuss the morality of abortion or legislative solutions. Frankly, the abortion topic is enormous, and we can't cover it all and debate each aspect from both sides. My objective today is quite limited, to introduce two ideas which are rarely discussed in our political circles. Buckle up. If you missed it, check out last week's program with Paul Kennedy, who is a professor of history at Yale. Paul is one of our greatest living historians who discussed his classic work, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. And it tells the story about why the U.S. will experience relative decline and that China will continue to be an ascending power. All right, let's begin with Northwestern law professor, John McGinnis. John, what are the implications that someone leaked a draft of Justice Alito's opinion overturning Roe versus Wade? This is the most important Supreme Court case in a generation. Are you surprised that a clerk leaked it to Politico? The leak is really very dangerous to the court. The coin of the realm in the Supreme Court is the willingness to hear people's arguments even after opinion is drafted and deliberate on them. It's not only about the Supreme Court, but it really should make us reflect on the danger to a republic of the loss of these institutional norms. Leaks are new to the Supreme Court, but not to the other branches of government. Let's use the Pentagon Papers as an example. Daniel Ellsberg revealed military secrets that were published by the New York Times. These confidential reports were published despite Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's request not to do so because they were state secrets. There were concerns about precedent and violations of institutional norms, especially in wartime, yet the Republic survived. Every modern president complains about leaks at the executive branch. However, leaks continue every day, and it's the bread and butter of the D.C. press. The public seems to want the Fifth Estate to get access to government secrets as a way to keep the government honest and prevent abuse. One difference between the court and these other leaks, the court really isn't trying to follow what the public wants, but what the Constitution says. The entire work product of the Supreme Court depends on candid back and forth between the justices. I think leaks are, while perhaps regrettable in certain national security situations, really cannot be analogized 
to those at the Supreme Court. And those at the court are much more damaging. And one evidence of that is we've never seen an opinion leaked before. When norms are broken, new norms of behavior are adopted. If clerks are not to be trusted on big constitutional cases, then the justices will have to write their own opinions on these matters and use the clerks exclusively for the more mundane cases. That still would be harmful. There's some reason that we have clerks. Judges will make more mistakes unless there are more eyes on the opinion. So there are costs of that, but you're right. The trade-off will be seen that we'll at least do these things more secretly. Clerks, I don't think they have all that much influence on the decisions, but have input into the drafting. The Supreme Court decision has a lot of effect on the law because it's at the top of a huge judicial hierarchy. I think the loss of trust in clerks is a real cost. You might see a bifurcated reaction, which I also don't think would be good, which is you might think even today, there really are two Supreme Courts. There's the Supreme Court that does the ordinary work, you know, the ERISA cases, the bankruptcy cases, the cases that never get to the front page. Don't let clerks work on that. The other cases that are on the front page, the judges are going to keep it to themselves. Nevertheless, that's still costly uh, because even those cases, the work product is improved by clerks. Justice Kagan said this, which I thought was very amusing. She said that, well, at conferences, the cases that they discussed most were these technical bankruptcy cases and jurisdictional cases. That's not surprising because that's actually where they might change other people's minds. They're all these technical matters that they just want to get right. Whereas you said there was very little discussion in the cases that make the front page. There are these two courts. There's one court that's a technical legal court, and there's another court that really is operating like a house of lords or something, just giving its own views. A number of our listeners are aware that the Dobbs opinion overrules Roe versus Wade, but they have not read the opinion in close detail. What is your evaluation of the leaked Alito opinion as a legal matter? Well, I think it's a sound opinion for a judge, right? It's not academic. He doesn't write a treatise on the original meaning of the Constitution. Roe versus Wade, even liberal law professors at the time said was a weak opinion, according to John Hart Ely, opinion that didn't really resemble constitutional law. It's really been defended on all sorts of bases, almost every amendment from the First Amendment to the Fourth Amendment to the 14th Amendment, substantive due process, privileges and immunities. Justice Alito goes through each of these arguments, not at the law review lengths, but I think very cogently and shows why a right to abortion cannot be contained in any of these provisions of the Constitution. I think it's sort of obvious why it's not a First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, but he takes on seriously this substantive due process argument. Now, some originalists would say, well, substantive due process itself is a mistake. He doesn't attack that because there's a lot of precedent on substantive due process and no Supreme Court justice is going to throw out all sorts of precedents. But he actually does suggest, even if you look at this with the provision that probably does speak to fundamental rights, which is the Privilege and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, that clause has been best understood as protecting rights that are deeply rooted in the American tradition, or at least that's one very powerful argument for it. Abortion has not been deeply rooted in the American tradition. It's not a deeply rooted right from the time 
of the 14th Amendment or even right up to Roe versus Wade till Roe versus Wade declared that it was a fundamental right. So I think it's a very sensible opinion. It's a lawyer-like opinion that still reflects the idea that we need to locate any right in the text of the Constitution, or at least in a very long-standing structure of precedence. His arguments are very straightforward. They're arguments that have been made against Roe for a very long time. They're very cogently made. Alito spends a lot of time in his Dobbs opinion on the issue of stare decisis. Stare decisis is when the Supreme Court accepts a previous court decision in future cases, even if the court thinks the previous case was made an error. Can you explain Justice Alito's decision-making process for overturning Roe and violating stare decisis? The most important factor in stare decisis is the quality of the reasoning of the case that's to be overruled. If the case is pretty close to being right, even if we would critique it in some ways, it's good enough for government work. But we cannot have cases that are completely contrary to the meaning and methodology of the Constitution. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Otherwise, the court is going to be building on its own erroneous reasoning and creating an edifice that's completely different from the Constitution. So given that the Constitution is difficult to amend, there's always a danger that one precedent is going to build on another. And so if one precedent is built on completely faulty reasoning, a precedent that is as important as Roe versus Wade, it's a danger because it set the court off on a totally wrong direction. Justice Alito points out that's been true of other cases. Plessy versus Ferguson, a case that permitted separate but equal, got the court on a completely false direction that was overruled. Lochner, a case that found a fundamental right to contracts, I think an argument that's stronger than Roe, an argument I think is still wrong, the court also overruled that. They overruled those cases because the quality of the reasoning was weak and moved the court in a direction that was contrary to basic tenets of the Constitution, the basic tenet being that people in the states have the right to make the law unless there is a provision of the Constitution that clearly deprives them of that. One other point I'd like to make is that people going around and saying, well, this is completely different, overruling Roe. It's the first time the court has taken a right away. This is false. In Lochner, they gave the right to people, which is an important right, to work unless the government could come up with a very persuasive justification. That's an important individual right, and the court overruled that. And the court, in a case called Smith, overruled free exercise, saying that Even neutral laws that the government passed, you might have a free exercise right against them. So if you were fired because you wouldn't work on Saturday, you could have a free exercise right to say, well, I should get employment insurance, even though the neutral rules said for personal reasons you wouldn't get it. They overruled that, too, in Smith. Cases that grant individual rights can be overruled. Justice Alito quotes Archibald Cox, who was formerly JFK's U.S. Solicitor General. Cox complains that Roe reads like a congressional statute and not like a court opinion. Absolutely. Cox puts his finger on one of the problems. It's very odd to think that the Constitution 
has a detailed trimester regulation scheme in it. It's quite bizarre. This, I think, is very hard for people to understand, is not about abortion. It's about policing the judiciary and the difference between law and policy. Maybe the trimester scheme is great as a matter of policy. Maybe it's the scheme we should have, but there's nothing in the Constitution that suggests that is. And also, there's really no competence in the court. And that's the concern about Roe, to demarcate the area between law and policy. And that's the reason that it's so important for Roe to be overruled, just as it was important for Lochner to be overruled, this case that said bakers couldn't work for more than 10 hours. So long as you agree that legislatures can make health and safety regulations, that's not a decision the judges have a kind of comparative advantage in making. And so one way of thinking about our Constitution is we try to get decisions where judges have a comparative advantage, which are dictated by the rules and meaning of the Constitution. And then we have discretionary decisions. We leave those to the legislature. And Roe violated that basic premise. And that's the reason it needs to be overruled. I was confused by one of Alito's arguments in Dobbs. He mentions that after most of the major constitutional cases, there's often a swift change in public opinion that supports the court's decision. I assume Alito was referencing either the Brown decision overturning Plessy versus Ferguson or establishing the right for gays to marry. Public opinion for the right to abortion was evenly split in 1973 when Roe was written and is about the same today. Why is it relevant whether a Supreme Court decision changes public opinion? This goes to the question of stare decisis, because if indeed Roe had captured a change in society, now everyone thought abortion should be free, easy, accessible, and everyone thought that, even if Roe is as bad a decision on its reasoning, it still perhaps should not be overruled. Lawrence Tribe and Mark Tushnet, who are both liberal Harvard constitutional law professors, condemned Roe as poorly reasoned years ago. And very recently, Akhil Amar, who is a liberal Yale constitutional law professor, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal agreeing with Alito's opinion in Dobbs. Why isn't the liberal academy screaming bloody murder about Dobbs? Oh, not being in the legal academy, you don't see the hundreds of people who come out arguing that it's a terrible decision. Indeed, Lawrence Tribe thinks it's a terrible decision now. The left didn't defend Roe. They just argued, well, it should be accepted as stare decisis. Stare decisis is always a somewhat weak kind of argument. We just should accept it because it exists. What are the best arguments made by the Legal Academy that oppose Alito's Dobbs decision? And will these attacks influence Alito's final decision, the dissents, or the concurring opinions? I don't think it will change Alito's opinion much. I don't think it will respond to arguments of academics. But if they make their way into the dissents, he'll respond to those. There are new arguments that this violates the Equal Protection Clause because it treats women particularly badly. Now, of course, there's an obvious problem with that argument, which is that men can't bring women to term, right? And there's some Supreme Court precedent that says, well, of course, you can actually apply equal protection in those cases. And that's essentially what Alito says. So a lot of people have tried to build on this, and they tried to say, well... But the motivations here are clearly anti-women. 
And that's the reason that we have these abortions, that they're trying to keep women in the home. I don't think they're very good kinds of arguments because women and men feel the same thing about abortion. There's a question of the life of the fetus, and I think that's an important consideration. We also had laws of conscription that forced men to go and fight. And that was a real cost to men. You could get killed if you were a man. My prediction is we'll see a lot more discussion of equal protection arguments, equality arguments. The basic difference in the public's mind and why the public has changed about same-sex marriage and abortion is people can debate about whether there's a harm, when is this fetus alive. It's much harder to make the harm argument about same-sex marriage. And that's why I think these arguments about fundamental rights are very difficult to make for abortion because you don't have fundamental rights to do things that may be harmful. And we can have a debate about whether it's harmful. That seems very open to discussion and maybe should be a legislative decision. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that her opinions were improved by the quality of the drafts of Scalia's dissents. Do you think that in the process the liberal dissent on Dobbs will influence Alito's redraft and that will improve the quality of his final opinion? To some extent, I think it's already a pretty good opinion, as I've suggested. I think we'll see some equality arguments from the dissents that will force him to take those arguments seriously. His opinion will be improved by some of the other members of the majority who will refine some arguments he's made. In Brown, Earl Warren recognized this was going to be an enormous decision. And he went to the justices and really insisted that it be a 9-0. And so justices who were on the fence caved as Warren appealed to their loyalty to the institution and the expectation of attacks on the court. Do you think in this case that you might see something similar? Do you think Chief Justice Roberts, who is offended by the leak, will change his decision? And is it possible that one of the liberal justices might change theirs as well? Roberts has some view that it would be good for this to be a 6-3 decision and may think of that as part of his calculus. On the other hand, in the oral argument, he very publicly staked out a position, which was, let's uphold this law without overruling Roe. And he may fear that he doesn't want to seem to change it under pressure. I think at least there's a possibility that he will join in at least a good deal of Alito's opinion. That's my suspicion, but I'm not confident of that. I have a high degree of confidence that none of the other justices are going to join Alito's opinion. It's not their way of doing constitutional law. Justice Sotomayor has been drifting very sharply to the left, and her comments at oral argument suggest that she wants to write a barn-burning dissent the really interesting question is whether Kagan and Breyer will join any dissent of Sotomayor. My suspicion here, with again a low degree of confidence, is they will not do so. That she will go off on some equal protection argument and denounce patriarchy and Breyer and Kagan will be much more measured. Maybe she'll join in their dissents, which we I think more focused on stare decisis. Kagan She's trying to stake out a position that she's the starry decisis judge. Stay with Supreme Court decisions that have been decided. Do you think that Roe has politicized the Supreme Court confirmation process? And now that the issue is off the table, that it will reduce the importance of judge selection as the court returns to citing boring ERISA and bankruptcy cases? 
it will help insofar as people think that overruling Roe is entrenched and it's not coming back again. I think more of the movement is going to be political, which will help the court. It's going to be in state legislatures and maybe in Congress to enshrine certain abortion rights. I do think that will help. It obviously is not going to change things completely because there are other hot button issues for the court. Next term, we'll see the affirmative action cases. If originalism were accepted by both parties, much like the ERISA cases, we get a tempering of the divisions over the Supreme Court. And I don't expect that anytime soon, because one of the things we've noticed, at least in Congress, is for the first time in Justice Barrett's confirmation hearing, senators coming out against originalism, against interpreting the Constitution according to its original meaning, saying things like, that's racist, that's homophobic. I'm quoting Senator Markey of Massachusetts. We're actually getting a division over judicial methodology. It may depend on political events that we really cannot foretell. It depends on who's going to be doing the appointing of the judges. I don't think there's any particular decision that's likely to rouse as many passions as Roe versus Wade. Do you think that the opposition to originalism was related to the fear of overturning Roe? And now that that is off the table, will originalism be less attacked? Originalism is never going to be embraced by progressives. There is a conservative valence to it. The slowing down the pace of change by forcing Congress to legislate and not allowing discretion of presidents through bureaucracies to make dramatic social change. That's not the Constitution of 1789, even as amended in 1868. And that, I think, will become the nub of progressives' objections, even after abortion is taken off the table. Do you think that the Supreme Court will ever consider overturning Dobbs? To change the abortion decision, they really need to change the personnel on the court quite dramatically. And to have a political movement that's able to do that, they'll brought in it through Congress, even before the court gets to it. I think we're going to see the state legislatures and ultimately the federal legislatures when there's the next Democratic wave. When the Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate with Obama, they could have codified Roe versus Wade, and they didn't at that time. Next time, if they get 60 votes in the Senate, I'm pretty confident they'll be doing that. Red, blue, and purple state legislatures will pass very different abortion bills. How will these laws affect people residing in different states? The red states and the blue states will figure out ways of coming into conflict with one another. My prediction is the blue states are going to say, not only are our uh, people can have abortion whenever they want, but we'll pay for other people's abortions who come to our state. And some of the red states will say, well, if you're a citizen of our state, you can't go to another state to get an abortion. So I think that's the next round of litigation. Can a red state forbid its citizens from going, getting an abortion in another state? There's actually some Supreme Court precedents that suggest there are some authorities of states uh, over their citizens when they go to other states. The legislation is political messaging, particularly on the right, because for a while, their legislation wouldn't actually take effect because of Roe. And now they'll have to be accountable for the legislation. And so I think we will actually see some moderation. That would be my prediction. I end each episode on a note of optimism. John, 
What are you optimistic about as it relates to Dobbs? I am optimistic that this will temper the Supreme Court confirmation wars because it will get the court out of the abortion regulation business and deflect that attention into state legislatures where these very serious and difficult policy issues should be decided. It's healthy for the court and creates a demarcation between the business of making policy and the business of making law. And that goes far beyond the question of abortion. Thanks, John. All right, let's move to our second speaker, Howard Husak, a senior fellow of domestic policy studies at AEI. Howard, please give us your six-minute presentation. I am not a constitutional scholar. I'm not somebody who has expressed public opinions about the issue of abortion, but I am very interested in the American federalist system and localism in America, the decentralization of our governmental structures that has tended to work out compromises on some of our hottest, most divisive issues. And I'm hoping that the leaked Justice Alito decision might actually end the abortion wars that we've had for the last 50 years. And let me explain how that might happen by using a very obscure example. hundred some years ago, the most divisive issue in the United States of America was whether to allow the sale of alcohol. It was such a strong issue that Al Smith, the Democratic nominee for president in 1928, lost probably because he was a Catholic, but he also came from a wet state, New York. This is beautifully detailed in a wonderful book that I recommend called Last Call by the popular historian Dan Okrent about the rise and fall of prohibition. He points out that the strongest interest group was the Anti-Saloon League. In 1915, 50% of the overall population lived in a dry state. But the Anti-Saloon League was not content. It did not want to rest until it passed a constitutional amendment to ban the sale of liquor. As hard as it is to pass a constitutional amendment, they succeeded. This should have been their great victory, but ultimately, it was the beginning of the end for them. So you'll see my parallel with Roe v. Wade. The whole country was in a frenzy during Prohibition, the rise of organized crime, Al Capone. What happened? Franklin Roosevelt, the next governor for New York to run for president, was elected and quickly moved to repeal the 18th Amendment with the 21st Amendment. That was the end of Prohibition, but it was not the end. This is my key point here. It was not the end of dry states. Seven states remained completely dry, and a significant part of the country adopted so-called local option, where counties or municipalities had the right to remain dry. So after the repeal of Prohibition, compromise became the order of the day. And wet versus dry rapidly faded from our discourse that it seems like a bizarre footnote to our history. What's the parallel with Roe v. Wade? Well, before Roe v. Wade, 20 states had adopted liberal abortion laws, including 
California, a law signed by Ronald Reagan in 1967, the trend was very clearly going in the direction of pro-choice. But then Roe v. Wade stopped the political process in its tracks. The possibility of compromise was eliminated. And instead, we've had 50 years of the most divisive debate in our politics. So what might happen post Roe v. Wade? Something not that dissimilar to post-prohibition. Even the Mississippi law, which came before the courts, does not outlaw abortion. It legalizes it up to 15 weeks, first trimester. Some of these more draconian laws we're seeing in Oklahoma and Texas, let's see if they withstand the will of the electorate. Right now, up to this point, we've had politicians who could take what I would call a free kick. They could oppose Roe v. Wade without facing the voters. Well, if they continue to oppose abortion, they'll have to face the voters. A lot could change. The American tradition of localism and federalism could once again bring us to a happier place. Won't happen right away, but over time. Thanks, Howard. Let's get right into it. I want to understand why prohibition is a good comparison with the abortion issue. Was prohibition based on a moral crusade to stop excessive drinking because of the attendant concerns that men would beat their wives and be unable to go to work in the morning? This was a moral crusade led by Midwestern Protestants. And the Anti-Saloon League started in Oberlin, Ohio. They were progressives that wanted to uplift the masses who were pursuing an immoral way of life and motivated small-town Protestants who founded the WCTU, Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Anti-Saloon League. They were aided by state legislatures all over the country in which counties were the unit which elected state legislators. So rural areas had disproportionate representation. Those rural areas tended to be church-going, small-town Protestants. Second of all, they did not look very favorably on these new immigrants who were dominating the big cities, who were Catholics, Jews, other people who drank alcohol. So it was caught up with the immigration debates, as well as a true belief that excessive drinking was immoral. Given the difficulty of passing a constitutional amendment, how did the temperance movement succeed in getting the 18th Amendment passed? And how did his opponents rescind it with the 21st Amendment after just 15 years? Well, reality bites. And there was a widespread recognition that drinking was driven underground, that respectable people wanted to drink wine, beer, and liquor by the glass. Remember, Roosevelt's elected during the Depression. And the idea, we're broke and hungry and we can't even have a drink. Roosevelt had a strong motivation to quickly move against prohibition. The only way to undo it was to pass another constitutional amendment. And we're hearing this with Roe v. Wade. It would be quite unfortunate, in my opinion, but both proponents of choice and proponents of life are talking about federal legislation or constitutional amendment. 
And so we would bring back this national policy, which has proved so divisive, just as prohibition was extraordinarily divisive. Do you expect that pro-choice advocates will push for federal legislation to make abortions legal nationwide? Before Roe v. Wade, 20 states had already legalized abortion. The chances are very good that most states will not prohibit abortion. So it would be a tremendous overreach on the part of pro-choice advocates to push for federal legislation. Federal laws can be changed. And so there would be nothing permanent about it. Prohibition is your best example for how anger around an issue can be diffused over time. In Evanston, Illinois, where my son attends Northwestern University, this used to be the center of the temperance movement, and Evanston was a dry city for a long time. And a neighboring town of Highwood, Illinois, which was right next to the army base of Fort Sheridan, has always been wet. How do you think about the differences of towns right next to each other making different choices, and then those citizens from both towns traveling to the wet town to drink? 10% of the population of the United States today lives in a dry jurisdiction. That's incredible. I, I suspect that there are easy workarounds for those looking to buy liquor. It must vary tremendously. You might be able to buy a six-pack in a gas station, but not be able to buy liquor in a restaurant. You might have to bring your own bottle. There's all sorts of variations in inner city communities. The proliferation of liquor licenses can be deleterious to the social fabric, lead to rowdiness and undermine civility. Localism acts as a safety valve in the United States, and that's what we've suppressed with the Roe v. Wade decision. How would you compare prohibition with the legalization of marijuana? The legalization of marijuana parallels the prohibition story. I happen to be quite concerned about the legalization of marijuana and the use of drugs in our population, but it is interesting as a political matter and localism matter, since that's what we're talking about here, that legalization in California and New York to ban it or not ban it. And more than half the localities in New York State, for instance, have said, not here. You can't sell it. You can't use it. And so localism is once again providing a safety valve. Is abortion fundamentally different than prohibition? The pro-life advocates compare abortion to murder. Alcohol doesn't seem to be comparable. Let's be plain spoken here. This is a human rights issue. This is more like slavery for these groups. The abolitionists wanted to say slavery can't be local option any more than public accommodations can be local option in southern states. The pro-life side sees this as a moral issue. And so the idea of compromise is especially difficult here because the core constituencies for both sides see it as a human right issue as opposed to alcohol, maybe not quite as absolutist. New York will allow abortion up to the point of birth, and Mississippi will say not past 15 weeks. That's a compromise. For those two core constituencies, that may never be acceptable. 
at the same time, as a political matter, returning it to the states may mute the divisiveness. Corporations have recently been adopting progressive positions in the past year in the public press. Delta opposed Georgia's voting right acts. Disney condemned Florida's bill that limited sex education to toddlers. And McDonald's abandoned Russia after Ukraine was attacked. Do you expect corporations to discontinue doing business in states that limit the rights to abortion? Well, corporations ultimately are going to be responsive to their bottom lines. They can virtue signal for a period of time. And I think that Delta and Coca-Cola, in terms of the election laws in Georgia, they felt that it was in their interest to signal this way, or they wouldn't have done it, perhaps because of their employees' views, consumer views outside of Georgia. We should presume that people in the C-suites in these companies are not recklessly expressing these views, even if we happen to disagree with them. I'm confused by the religious nature of the pro-life movement. I would expect that the states that would be pro-life would have a substantial Catholic population. Oklahoma, Mississippi have few Catholics and many evangelical Christians. What's up? There was a terrific book written by Kristen Luker. She was early to point out that the division over abortion, for the Catholics, it was about life begins at conception. But for cultural conservatives and evangelicals, it was libertine women who were going to undermine the traditional family and gender roles. That idea took hold amongst evangelicals. What do you think of Senator McConnell's calculus when he announced that he would not support federal legislation on the abortion question, but would instead encourage that the matter be handled by local communities and the states? Well, I can't speak for Senator McConnell. I think what he's thinking about every day when he gets up is, how can I flip the Senate and the House? And what will be most advantageous to my party? And I think he feels it's most advantageous to his party not to inflame the issue. And that that's the best way that he can satisfy his right and moderate flanks without inflaming the issue. He's a expert tactician. In what kind of elections will the abortion issue be pivotal? It's much more likely to have a big impact on gubernatorial races. Will governors support or veto abortion legislation? It will inevitably begin to play itself out in state legislative races. And the grandstanders will be the candidates for federal office because they're not likely to have much say on this. Since McConnell is ruling this out, Democrats decide they do want to pass national legislation and candidates for Congress campaign on the idea that they will endorse national legislation making abortion legal across the country. For the Democrats to pass federal legislation legalizing abortion nationwide, They would require 60 votes to pass the filibuster in the Senate. But the Democrats lack the votes in the current Senate with only 49 Democrats who support expanding abortion rights. Two Democrats, Manchin and Sinema, support the filibuster. If there is an upset in the 2022 midterm elections and the Democrats hold the House and pick up two Senate seats, do you expect that the Democrats could blow up the filibuster to pass 
a national pro-choice abortion law. Well, you can't rule that out because this is a core issue for the Democratic left. What kind of abortion laws will pass in the various states? Well, the beauty of decentralized government is that it is unpredictable. And there are a lot of Catholic voters in New York State. That could become a voting issue in the state Senate. You can't rule that kind of thing out. There are a lot of Northerners moving to Austin, Texas. They may say, wait a minute, we don't want to live under a regime like this. And so we could see changes. The whole politics is likely to change and that the restrictionist and the up until the point of birth may face the wrath of moderate voters. I wouldn't want to hazard a guess. It's the beauty of our federalist system that it evokes unpredictable compromise. In your opening remarks, you said it was bizarre that people could have fought over getting a drink at a saloon. Yeah. How long will it take for us to think it's bizarre that we would be so upset about whether or not someone will get an abortion in Mississippi? Eight years. How'd you come up with that? Two election cycles. It'll work itself out of the body politic. What will the equilibrium look like? I would say if there were 20 states that had liberal abortion laws in 1970, I think you're getting close to 40 states. Do you think any states will ban abortion altogether? Oklahoma just has pretty close. But again, that governor is going to have to face the people. Seven states remain dry after prohibition. So let's use that as our benchmark. Seven states will continue to be restrictionist. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Howard, what are you optimistic about as it relates to the abortion issue? I'm very optimistic about this court decision because it's going to pop the cork on all this pressure that has built up around the abortion issue for so long. And it's dominated our political discourse to the detriment of our addressing a range of important issues, especially as regards the Supreme Court. The idea that we could move on and reach a compromise in a country that has become so famously polarized is a really attractive prospect. My truly optimistic Pollyanna-ish note would be that the liberals on the Supreme Court would say, you know what, we're personally pro-abortion, but we agree that the case of Roe v. Wade was decided on faulty constitutional grounds. This is going to be a 9-0 decision. Thanks to John and Howard for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our speaker next week will be Paul Kennedy, who is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of History at Yale. Paul will discuss the major naval battles of World War II, which are described in his new book entitled Victory at Sea. You may recall that you met Paul last week when he reflected on his 35-year classic work, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.